Hey everyone, it's Juad here with Hit the Apex, the podcast as always. We're here, it's the end of March. I can't believe time has flown so quickly. End of March also means it's kind of the end of summer, even though we're in autumn now here, but it kind of is the last of the the sunny days and everything, and you wouldn't tell that it's the end of autumn, given that today's actually quite a nice day outside, a bit warm, but yeah, slowly those cold, wintry days are going to be creeping in, and not to mention daylight savings as well, which... I don't think, yeah, I'm not a big fan, (laughs) prefer it when the sun's out quite late in the evening, so another summer done and dusted and thinking about what you could have, what more could you have done to enjoy the time, but also there was quite a lot done too, so happy with that, but um, anyway, enough of that, we've got a podcast to do about some racing cars and um, going in circles, well not really going in circles, but yeah, the Bahrain Grand Prix on this weekend. We're already into the second round of the championship, going into the twilight zone, as like as we like to say, and perhaps a more representative race um, than Melbourne. You know, we had Valtteri Bottas come out and basically destroy the competition, as did Mercedes as a whole in Melbourne at Albert Park two weeks ago. But could this be more representative of where the grid is? And I guess the big question and the talking point coming out of um, the Australian Grand Prix was Ferrari and whether all that pre-season hype and form that they showed was really just bluster and are they really, um, is Mercedes really the team to beat? But I think this weekend will perhaps give us more of an understanding as to where they lie as far as the representative order is concerned um i think um, i don't know i wasn't really yeah it was a bit of a shock after melbourne to see ferrari where they were particularly they were a minute uh, the leading cars of sebastian vettel finished almost a minute behind the race winner bottas but i wasn't too concerned with ferrari after melbourne i'm like well you know that speed that they had in pre-season wouldn't have disappeared willy-nilly I think coming to track like Bahrain where you know temperatures much hot much hotter um, they've traditionally been very strong here Sebastian Vettel's been very strong here with he's got the record for for four wins and has won the last couple of years I think last year he won the race from pole position in a Ferrari so uh, yeah expect something different this weekend if perhaps it's the same story as Melbourne and Ferrari are a minute off the pace I think that's when we start to get a little concerned for their championship season but even the team principal Matteo Bonotto said that you know they've made corrections and whatnot and they understand where things went wrong and why they were so slow so yeah, you know, not too concerned about them at this stage of the season. Obviously, and naturally, Ferrari always have this air of expectation around them, not just from themselves as a team, but fans, the media, and, you know, I think often you'll hear and see things being talked about, about Ferrari, they've got to win all the time and whatnot, Perhaps this is one of those instances where we shouldn't get too carried away with what we see in the first race, 
but perhaps, you know, give it the next race or the next couple of races to see where they are. If Mercedes go and Lewis Hamilton goes, wins the, th- the next three Grand Prix by the time we get back to, um, uh, what do you call it? back to Europe and to Barcelona, then that'll be a big concern for the championship. But I'm sure we'll see Ferrari come back on form as well. And of course, it's the 999th Grand Prix this weekend, two in Bahrain. So the the special uh, milestone, the 1000th race will come next time out in China. But yes, a special one leading into it. So what will we see? Who knows? Um, Vettel and Hamilton, the only guys of the current crop that have actually won in Bahrain. Um, But we've got a range of contenders, I guess, for first-time winners. Bottas, can he back up that form that he had in Melbourne, which was just peerless during the race? We talked about Steely Edge and everything and how he just seems like a totally different character this season. And then Charles Leclerc, who was, you know, chomping at the bits um, or snapping at the heels of... Vettel in Melbourne and was told ultimately to hold station he could be in contention and Max Verstappen too because um, Red Bull if they're as strong as they were in Melbourne then totally consider them a contender and everything uh, for this race and I guess for Red Bull it would be a bit of vindication given that the last two years in Bahrain they've not really had the best success I mean Max has finished well, didn't finish the last two years back-to-back DNFs. Daniel Ricciardo as well last year for Red Bull was um, unable to see the checkered flag. So Red Bull will hopefully be targeting, you know, if not the victory, just at least a podium finish to to get that rotten luck that they've had in Bahrain out and, you know, continue this partnership with Honda, which has just been, you know, from the start has been quite strong. So... That'll be one thing to look out for there. But yeah, I think going back to as far as the championship battle is concerned, as far as the contenders are concerned, sorry, um, Ferrari, we should see them on song a bit more this time out than we did in Melbourne. So we'll just wait and see what happens. I mean, still got a few practice sessions qualifying and the race to to determine that so we'll see how we'll see how things go and going back to Daniel Ricciardo then um, he said that he's reset himself now after that disaster of a home race that he did have and you know there was a lot of talk about Ricciardo after the race uh, you know about managing expectations and um, even his own team boss said that he's you know perhaps gonna there's gonna be a bit of adjusting for him now in the midfield you know given that he's so used to being at the front of the field so we'll see how that goes I mean Ricardo's still a world-class driver he's a race winner and he wouldn't have jumped teams or jumped ship if it were if he didn't believe that this project with Renault would actually be um, worth jumping on board with so baby steps I guess there um, he didn't finish the race here last year, but hopefully, you know, Renault capable of top five finishes if possible. Um, we saw Hulkenberg finish seventh behind the Haas car in Melbourne. So, you know, perhaps this will this race will offer a better representation of the midfield too because, you know, the Haas cars were ahead in Australia, but we know from testing that it was Alfa Romeo who was strongest. So perhaps we might see that competitive order shift again this weekend and 
Um, we've got a, quite a few contenders in the midfield that have actually had podiums at this venue. Kimi Raikkonen, most podiums without a win here in Bahrain, of course, with Ferrari, Lotus, um, over the years. I think maybe he had a podium with McLaren too. I'm not too sure about that one, but don't count it out. And then also Checo Perez um, in the Force India a few years ago, now Racing Point, and Roman Grosjean when he was a Lotus driver as well. Um, picked up a couple of podiums too so those guys have good experience those cars will probably be strong here again McLaren they were quite strong in Melbourne too um, especially with Lando Norris so you know will we see more from him this weekend I'm sure Carlos Sainz will want to to get one up over his teammate too given that his race sort of ended prematurely over there so we'll see how that all shakes out but yeah, you know, Toro Rosso were really strong too. Will they be as strong here in Bahrain? It's just a matter of seeing what the race yields. And given that it is at night time as well, I guess practice might give us one picture and then in the race itself it might be another scenario. But track characteristics and stuff, like it's more high-speed corners, um, a lot quicker than in Melbourne. So perhaps, yeah, you know, that representative order that we've been looking for will show here. But at the same time, you know, we just need to sort of temper our expectations a little bit this early in the season. So I guess an early tip, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Ferrari, going back to the race win and whatnot, I wouldn't be surprised if Ferrari came out and won this weekend. Um, it's just one of those things where, yeah, you know, perhaps the Melbourne form guide, we all got wrong. But again, it's just a matter of that representative nature of the circuit and everything. People might complain about lack of overtaking in Melbourne. It's just the way that the circuit is. So we should see a lot more overtaking this weekend. And that's going to be exciting, particularly if, you know, someone qualifies out of position. Daniel Ricciardo, we know he's a, a solid overtaker. So perhaps if he qualifies in sort of the middle part of the top 10 or the lower part of the top 10, depending on how strong the Renault is, you know, could we see him do some passing and whatnot? So I'm not saying he's going to finish on the podium, but yeah, he could be in for a good weekend as far as um, uh, overtaking is concerned and score some score some points, which would be good for his, you know, start to his Renault career after um, the disaster in his home race in Melbourne. Um, some other things to come out, I guess, before we head racing this weekend. So the FIA have confirmed that Michael Massey will continue as race director in the wake of um, the sad news of Charlie Whiting's death um, ahead of the Australian Grand Prix. So a um, bit of continu continu uh, continuity, that's the word I'm looking for, a bit of continuity, I guess, with the race direction and, you know, a good job done by Massey and co in Melbourne. So it would be good to see him continue on the Australian that he is as well. A bit of patriotism there. Um, and we've also got Formula 2 kicking off this weekend too, which will be really exciting. Um, a lot of new faces in the field, some familiar faces there. I guess the driver that Everyone, I'm sure, is hyped about this year is um, Mick Schumacher, who will make his debut this weekend for Prema. And more so, the hype will be around the um, the rookie test that's going to take place um, the day after the race um, for the F1 guys. And young Schumacher will be 
testing not only the Alfa Romeo, which was said at the end of last year, but he's been called up to do a test day with Ferrari now too. So I think that'll be pretty awesome to see uh, Schumacher name in a Ferrari again. And, you know, young Mick's first taste of uh, contemporary F1 machinery too. So he's probably, he's never driven um hybrid f1 car the only f1 car i'm sure he has driven was actually one of his uh, dad's old benettons as well in a demo run at spa so to actually turn a wheel and anger in a modern f1 car will be quite interesting to see and of course his um prema teammate this year in f2 Callum Ilot as well he'll be um testing in the alpha car too so two ferrari young drivers um that Ferrari have in their academy this year racing in F2 and they've been really churning out I guess churning out the talent which is good to see Leclerc of course having graduated to Ferrari now so perhaps you know one of these two or you'd think perhaps it'll be Schumacher who'll be the next one to the next Ferrari young driver to graduate over to um, the big team whether it'll be in maybe three years or something who knows so we'll see how he goes of course in f2 this year because it is a competitive field once again so yeah looking forward again second grand prix weekend we got f2 as the undercard as well and um again just it'll probably give us more of a representation and you know you can have a counter in your hand while you're listening and count how many times I've used representative or representation already um, as we only were not even 15 minutes into this thing. So yeah, it should be a good weekend. Um, Plenty more to get through as well. 2021, of course, supercars and talk a bit of MotoGP as well. So talking about 2021 then, so there was a F1 strategy group meeting um, earlier this week on the 26th for a presentation between the strategy group and the F1 commission with also the um, bosses of the sport, so Liberty Media and I guess the FIA were involved too. And this is because the deadline for the regulations to be approved by the World Motorsport Council for 2021 are... coming closer is coming clear it's coming closer and closer it'll be june 30 that it has to be nailed in and i guess the presentation was more so to outline the whole package i guess the commercial side of things of course with the concord agreement being um up as well at the end of 2020 so this is liberty media's opportunity to sort of craft or present their vision of the sport to the teams and all the stakeholders the way that they want to obviously at the moment a lot of the deals that are sort of locked in are from the previous commercial rights era with Bernie Eccleston a lot of the the race deals you know with race promoters across the world are unfortunately still from those um previous dealings with Eccleston so to craft a whole new package I guess it's going to be a pretty significant deal for um for liberty media because this is where we get to see truly whether you know they've got what it's yeah they've got what it takes to govern this sport and i know there's been a lot of tension in the last year or so between the top teams chiefly mercedes and ferrari who are also um oems manufacturers in another in another sense 
um, and the rights and privileges that they have, you know, do they have to give that up for liberty's future? And I guess at the moment they've sort of come to a to an understanding and an agreement, you know, because the budget cap is something that has been proposed, especially to to level the playing field if they can, you know, with fairly similar power unit concepts to what they've got at the moment, given that hybrid is the future of Formula One for perhaps the midterm now, um, and introducing standardised parts, so perhaps the gearbox is something that teams can save a bit of money on and just have it built by a, a supplier, you know, contracted out to someone else to do, um, given that it doesn't really give much performance gain apparently anymore. So, you know, it's it's something that they don't really need to go into a development war over. And perhaps even, yeah, you know, reducing some of the costs on the side of power unit componentry as well, outsourcing that rather than building it in-house. So that's, you know, I guess some of the things that were talked about with the budget cap and everything. And it's been told as well that the budget cap is only for car development. So like they've given a, a number, they've got to stick within the number as far as, you know, aero work and all that, just building the car, but driver salary, staff salary and, you know, hospitality and all that sort of stuff isn't included. So, you know, given that the number was like 140 million or something um, on a yearly basis, yeah, you're not going to get your drivers and staff salary put into that. So that's not including that. So teams can splash the cash um, if they want to get someone like a Lewis Hamilton or Daniel Ricciardo or whatever. But yeah, as far as developing the car, this is where the budget really comes um, to strictly you know restrict spending in that instance so prize money as well set to be dis, uh, distributed a lot more fairly so at the moment the way it's all set out it's kind of all over the place where Ferrari even if they don't win the championship or even finish second in the championship they still end up earning more than other teams do which is a bit ridiculous but you know one of the negotiating things that they ended up negotiating with uh, Liberty Media was that they'd retain some of that bonus that they do get for being a historic constructor in the sport and everything so I guess given as long as you know that number that original number that they were receiving is slashed it's sort of okay but still it doesn't you know I guess given that it is Ferrari and they've had such a long history in the sport you know it's okay that they've get some kind of bonus for it but as in terms of parity and just what do you call it fairness equality or whatever it doesn't seem fair particularly if they're a team that are not you know winning all the time and and this is go this goes back to that whole expectation idea about Ferrari expected to win all the time and them always being a bit of a letdown because they can't win the championship so you know I guess maybe that'll give them some more motivation to to get that number one spot and get that um, constructors and drivers championship winners um, bonus that whatever it is that they get at the end of the year at um, for winning those championships, but it should help you know guys like uh, Racing Point um, and you know Haas and all that as well who are doing this you know on small budgets uh, Renault as well I guess a big part of the way that they operate is that they're not willing to go into a spending frenzy like 
um, Mercedes and Ferrari and Red Bull to to get to the top, but you know they're going to get there in their own way. So, you know, when the playing field is leveled in a way, perhaps it could promote someone like a Renault who do not want to compete in Formula One on a extremely large budget to as a manufacturer be up there and everything and you know we'll see if it might even allow some of the independents to come back into contention as well which would be really good to see and you know I guess it's a it's always the talking point is that as an independent if you know you're not going to be winning races and whatnot what's the point of even turning up you know they're not just there as a money-making exercise, but they actually want those results too, because otherwise, why would you go racing? It's not like playing playing football or something where, you know, you got two teams and one of them is going to be the winner no matter what. So it's hard in Formula 1 these days to cause upsets. So, you know, Haas, for example, the likelihood of them winning a race is like, I don't know, 1% or 2%. I don't don't quote me on those figures but the chances are very slim so whereas you look at sometimes in other motorsport categories where they've got a bit more parity and I guess supercars is probably the perfect example for this as far as talking about parity is concerned even though they've had their own issues lately with that you know you can turn up to a given weekend and any team can be in contention of course you're going to have your top two teams, Penske and Triple Eight, but then, you know, at the Grand Prix, for example, Brad Jones Racing was really strong. They flew under the radar. They didn't get to win a race, but they had their cars on the podium, for example. And you look back a couple of years ago um, to Winton, I think, in 2016, where Brad Jones Racing and Tim Slade, they just put together the perfect weekend and dominated and left all their rivals scratching their heads. Um so, you know, where you've got great parity in the series, it can create opportunities for this. I mean, we've seen it in MotoGP as well with uh, the likes of Jack Miller, for example, on a on a customer spec Honda bike winning a race, a wet race, mind you, but still winning a race or whatever. So if more of that uncertainty can be brought into Formula One by sort of leveling the playing field in a way, that's probably what the... the goal is and you know yeah we're not going to see Haas or Racing Point at the moment win championships but if they can take wins or even finish on the podiums you know something similar to what we saw in 2012 I guess uh, for F1 you know where we had the Sauber guys on the podium here and there Williams you know scored a race win with Maldonado that's kind of the balance that we'd be looking for and when this is all done, I guess this is more. This is what might attract new teams and new manufacturers to the sport. Perhaps not necessarily as soon as twenty twenty one, but beyond that, you know, we might see uh, a big name manufacturer decide to come through, like Honda, for example. They they could decide that they want their own factory team, Honda F one team again. Aston Martin with their tie-up with Red Bull. If Red Bull decide eventually that F1's not their thing anymore, then, you know, what's not to like about Aston Martin taking over the Milton Keynes factory and um, having having their own, you know, having Aston Martin racing as a Formula One team? I think that just, just sounds epic, so be good to see. And even more teams, like, you know... Um, suggesting that we could have some more American teams. I've always talked about Penske and Andretti, they're two big names that 
you know, continue to expand into different markets. Penske came over to Australia first to do a tie-up in supercars with Dick Johnson, and that's turned out really successful. That led to Andretti coming over too to tie up with Walkinshaw, and that, you know, project is slowly gathering momentum. So, you know, perhaps it might entice those guys over there in America to even look at coming into F1 and whatnot we talked ages ago about um art when they were a force in the junior formulas you know it'd be good to see someone like that graduate you know make the step up into to moto sorry not moto gp into f1 because we've seen it in moto gp where you have um a team that can run in the junior category but then eventually steps up so mark vds was probably the best example even though now they've decided to fold um all together in the in motorcycle racing but you know they were in moto 2 i think it was and then eventually came into moto gp not the most competitive um team but you know jack miller did score the win for them which was really good and um the sky vr46 team so valentino rossi's own outfit now um they started off in moto 3 went over to Moto2, which they've been in in a couple of years now, and now the question is, when is he going to take that team into MotoGP? So there was talk perhaps it could have been this year or next year, but maybe when he decides to finally retire from full-time racing, it could be something that he becomes the manager of, having his own name as a team um, in MotoGP. So just some of the examples i guess of teams that could potentially enter f1 but it is as i guess jean todd and chase carey said during that press conference that we had in melbourne it you know it'd be great to have 12 teams on the grid but 10 healthy and strong teams is is more desirable in a sense so you know quality it's the whole quality over quantity thing again and i have to agree with that i'm kind of happy with the 10 teams at the moment given that we got such a strong midfield this year Williams is just an anomaly that we can forget about I mean it'd be great if they were in the mix as well but it's not like 2010 for example where we had three teams that all come into F1 at the same time all three getting it horribly wrong and you know not even making the 100 107% uh, qualifying time so yeah um, if we can get more teams like Haas in a way then that are more competitive even if they have to do a tie-up with a manufacturer it would be great for the competition so yeah quite a bit to to look forward to I mean we talked long about 2021 being that sort of watershed year and what does where does Formula One go from that and now we're slowly getting to that point you know or rather quickly uh, in a way getting there and you know we thought perhaps it's not going to change much but now yeah you know the potential is there for for a shake-up so we'll just have to wait and see how this one pans out indeed and june 30 is that deadline that we got to look for for when all that gets um approved by the motorsport council so how do I not talk about parity or how do I talk about parity and not talk about um, supercars um, in a bit more depth than I guess that talking point coming out of Melbourne was the whole center of gravity test that they were going to conduct after that weekend and the outcomes have been 
um, published and everything, and the tests showed that both the Mustang and the Commodore had a gravity of ad- advantage. So the way that the Mustang was built, as I talked about last week, was that it was built off the same sort of uh, framework as the, the Falcon last year, which had to be modified after the um, composite panel rule was introduced and they had to add weight to the exhaust on the Falcon FGX, which then transferred over to the Mustang. So the Mustang having this low ballast or whatever, um, you know, reduced, you know, height on the center, like it sort of puts the center of gravity a lot lower on the car, giving it in what they found during the test, an advantage through the corners. So perhaps that's where all the speed that the Mustang has has been coming. And we saw that at Phillip Island and indeed, um, well, Phillip Island for the test and indeed at the Grand Prix because of those fast and long corners that the, the circuits have. So will this sort of changing this have an effect on them? We'll have to see in Tasmania. So both the Commodore and the Mustang have had ballast added towards the roof of the car, so they've sort of made the t- it more top heavy or whatever. And they didn't modify the Nissan Altima in any way, which meant that you know perhaps it might bring them back a bit closer together now. But we'll just have to see in Simmons because, yeah, you know, this is such a big deal. This was such a big deal after the first two rounds and the fact that they've ended up having to modify the Commodore as well to to bring it in line with the Altima just to keep the playing field a lot level shows that, you know, even the Commodore was leagues ahead of the, the Altima, which I guess you don't really need to be an expert to, to figure out. But um, bringing that all back to even Stevens... Simmons planes next weekend will be pretty interesting to watch and because it's typically been a circuit where Triple Eight dominates, it would not be surprising in one bit if Triple Eight come out and uh, romp the weekend. But even with these uh, changes to the center of gravity or whatever and adding the ballast towards the roof for the Mustang, if that car is still strong, that's just credit to the Ford teams and how they've actually nailed the setups on these cars which a lot of them will still be using setups from last year from their falcons but just adapted them better um, adapted them over to the mustang which probably naturally is a is a superior chassis so that one's just going to continue to play out over the season i reckon i mean i kind of concluded or i did conclude last week that we'll get to a stage where yeah the control chassis will have to change and this is where you know you can get your Camaro in as well and perhaps redesign the Mustang so that perhaps it's closer to the shape of the Mustang that you can buy out of the showroom and that'll make a big change as far as um, the landscape is concerned but yeah we're not going to find out um, whether this has had an effect at Simmons well, until Simmons, sorry, and even then, perhaps Phillip Island will be the real, because it's their test track this year, that'll be a real um, event to get along to and see whether the Mustang still has that speed advantage over the um, Commodore, and Phillip Island generally is a circuit that McLaughlin, Scott McLaughlin dominates at, so, yeah, you know, it. he won last year, basically, because he was the best driver all season, and there were times when the Penske car wasn't as strong as 
um, the Triple Eight Commodore. So yeah, you know, you take away the car advantage. I'm sure the driver and the team will still f- engineer a way to to win. So yeah, it's down to the best team now. That if this advantage has been sort of brought back and they're on a level playing field, it'll be down to the t- best team now and the best driver to win. And I guess that's what supercars is about. So whether Triple Eight have sort of shot themselves in the foot. I think is probably the most interesting thing to come out of this is because they, the test found that they had an advantage too, as far as center of gravity is concerned. So whether they've shot themselves in the foot here by saying that we need to have this test and we need to have an investigation into whether the other team has an advantage, whether they've now gone and killed their own advantage and put themselves behind. I mean, what's been great to see is that not that I, dislike triple eight or anything but the fact is that their customer teams have been quite strong at the start of the season and this is nothing to do with center of gravity or ballast or whatever this is because of the um switch to linear springs or whatever so getting rid of the twin springs and going back to the single spring um triple eight really got the best out of their car when they had the twin spring and because they've sort of been caught with their pants down um, with this change coming in, they've had to really um, drastically do a rethink with how things work with that car. So it's going to be a tough one, but I don't put it past them to actually come through and be on top. So we'll just have to, to see with that one again. Um, I wish it was this weekend, actually, but, you know, we've got another weekend to wait for, for Simmons. So we'll just have to be patient, sit tight, and hope that... Um, the outcome of this test doesn't skew the competition into one team's favor because that sometimes that's what happens when these uh, investigations or you know investigations and whatnot come up is that if one team is perceived to be having an advantage and then they change the rules then sometimes the other team ends up favored with it so F1 2013 is probably my classic example for this so up until the midway point of the season it was pretty open as far as who was in the championship hunt. We had Vettel, of course. We had Alonso um, for Ferrari at the time. And then Kimi Raikkonen was sort of in it as well for the Lotus. And that was because of the unpredictability of the tyres. Red Bull had a chat with Pirelli over the mid-season and they were forced to go back. And just on safety grounds, they were saying they had to go back to the old compounds, the 2011 spec Pirelli tyres, which then ended up favouring Red Bull. And then they won nine races on the trot after that. So um, (laughs) the rest is history, basically. So it just goes to show you that sometimes these changes do end up favouring one team over the other. But I guess the important thing is that if this was intended and does end up putting everyone back on a level playing field, that is going to be... what is it that's going to be what the optimal outcome is or whatever now i'm talking in in ron speak there um mclaren ron dennis optimal outcome for company anyway now i'm getting carried away so as long as yeah everyone is happy at the end of the day we can let the racing do the talking then 
that's it. We don't need to worry about anything else. So speaking of Alonso, actually, that kind of brings me to my next point to talk about. So Zach Brown was at the Australian Grand Prix, We obviously, with McLaren or whatever, but, you know, he got to catch up with his pals at Walkinshaw Andretti United. We had um, Michael Andretti there as well. And, um, yeah, Zach Brown came out when the question was asked that Fernando Alonso is interested in doing the Bathurst 1000. So... I've written up a piece about this, uh, which is going to go up tomorrow, and just basically talking about how, for years, I've said that this would be a pipe dream. Uh, this is a pipe dream of mine that um, we can get a big name. Not that you know Bathurst doesn't already attract big names, whether it's the 12 hour or the 1000, but a Formula One world champion, which it's not been done since Alan Jones um, raced at Bathurst for about a decade or whatever with only a podium to show for it, um, that we have a Formula One world champion that comes over and tries this race. And now Fernando Alonso, of course, um, on his way to completing the Triple Crown, of course, he's doing the Indy 500 this year, he just needs to win that, just wins, like, you know, it's a, a simple thing that he needs to do, um, he needs to win that this year to complete that, because he won the 24-hour Le Mans last year, he gets to do Le Mans again this year to end the, the WEC Super Season um, for Toyota, he won Daytona at the start of this year, the 24 hours with um, Wayne Taylor Racing and whatnot, so, you know, he's slowly getting together a bucket, well, he's got a bucket list together of big races he wants to do, and what I find, which is the most best thing to come out of this is that the Bathurst 1000 is on that list for him, and Bathurst is just an entirely different beast altogether, you know, the supercars itself is a whole beast, um, whole different beast, and you know, so many drivers have given it a go, and perhaps it's not, you know, been their kettle of, kettle of tea or whatever, but it's just because of how challenging it is. Now, these cars, they're heavy, V8 engines, no electronic assists or driver aids. You know, getting one of these things off the line is said to be very difficult too. So imagine doing a 161-lap race around one of the most daunting circuits in the world. Now, I can go on and on about how amazing Bathurst is. Now, I've been there three times. I always love booting up Forza Motorsport and doing laps around this track, but given how daunting it is when you actually look at some of the corners in person and how sudden the drops are, how steep the rises are, going over McPhillamy Park, the metal grate, it's just like, whoa, you know, I could not, I do not have the stones to do this, I'm afraid, in real life, you know, perhaps, um, under the influence of something or other, I might be able to, but, yeah, like, it's definitely one of those scary things, and as a race driver, I think people now, racing drivers, realise that this is something that they've got to tick off, whether it's the 12-hour or the 1,000, the fact that Alonso has expressed his interest in the 1,000 is awesome, it's not going to happen this year, according to Zach Brown, so we'll just have to wait, perhaps next year now, given that Alonso does have a fairly busy schedule for this year, but having said that, Walkinshaw and Dreddy United are still eyeing wildcards for this year's Bathurst 1000, so they've talked about perhaps, you know, some of the IndyCar drivers from Andretti's side of the um, box that 
have the interest to come here and do the race too, likes of uh, Ryan hunter Ray or Alexander Rossi as well, um, potentially see one of those guys jump into a supercar and try. And I guess even the whole supercars thing, it's not really for the faint, faint-hearted because you might get a big name come over, but they're not going to have success straight away. It's not easy. It's not like that. And given how testing is so limited these days for it, like we all know what happened to Marcus Ambrose when he decided to come back to supercars and thought it would be a lot easier than it was. And then, yeah, he had to quit after a couple of rounds because of how difficult it was to adapt back to the series. So, you know, it's one of those things, you know, if you can do it, great. And it's a great spectacle seeing that. I mean, 2014, no, 2013, when we had that Triple Eight wildcard, the Xbox car with Matthias Ekstrom and Andy Prio do it, you know, first time for Ekstrom at Bathurst, he was just, I don't know, he was on another planet, that guy. They finished top 10 in the end, which was a great result for them. But, you know, to win on debut or whatever, probably not likely but given the the way the race is so crazy it wouldn't be surprising to see that but anyway now I'm getting a bit ahead of myself thinking oh yeah you know how good this will be we've still got you know a year at most or whatever at the least sorry um before we get any idea whether Alonso will come to Bathurst or not 2020 is probably the realistic expectation but yeah given that it's got that interest peaked I guess from from someone like well the someone like Alonso wants to do this race I'd love love to see it I'm sure everyone else will so you know come do it whether it's there 24 hour no not 20 12 hours sorry <laughs> whether it's the 12 hour which continues to to be a great event I already said booked my, my hotel for next year and whether it's that or the 1000 and I'm sure there's going to be a whole lot of Spanish fans, I'm sure that'll come over just for that. It's like, we've never been to Bathurst before, but, you know, Bathurst is going to be a buzz if Alonso comes. That's the kind of crowd he attracts. And not to mention the TV numbers as well will be something huge. So, yeah, one to to keep an eye on for the future. So, yeah, just to conclude, I guess, for this week, MotoGP um, is on. Argentina, the second round of the championship. They had a, a three-week break after the first weekend in Qatar. And I guess um, going into this weekend, we had the news of the protest against Ducati from the rival manufacturers having been dismissed. Um, everyone except for Yamaha um, decided to lodge a protest in regards to the aerodynamics that... Um, Ducati have on their bike for this season. It was a, it was not a dominant win from Davizioso, but you know he just pipped Marquez over the line, a carbon copy of last year's race. So it wasn't a, a very dominant display, and he wasn't leagues ahead. But everyone except for Yamaha are unhappy about the Ducati this year and the fact that they've got these gains from these aerodynamic solutions that they have developed over the t- over the last few years and we saw a ban on winglets a couple of years ago or whatever but now you know in other areas of the bike and they've started to to come back but the FIM the the governing body of the sport have said that the aero solutions are within the regulations and are not illegal so dismissing the protest altogether, which, you know, there's going to be a lot of unhappy 
unhappy campers for that but at the same time like they're doing a good job Ducati they've found motorsport is always about finding a part of the regulations that you can make to work to your advantage Ducati have naturally had a bike that's been strong horsepower wise but have inherently had the problem of getting their bike to actually have a good balance and be a good race bike for and adapt from circuit to circuit and the last few years We've finally seen that and, you know, we saw Davizioso in contention to the final race in 2017 until he crashed out and giving the title to Marquez. Last year, he would have been a contender too if it wasn't for his own inconsistencies. So, you know, this year could be a year for Ducati and Davizioso given that they've been so strong um, through testing their bike teams are unhappy because they think they're getting an advantage from this which you know is within the regulation and it's not but i guess the question to ask from all this is that will this start uh, a war of aero development between the moto gp manufacturers now you know i guess moto gp teams don't spend anywhere near the money that formula one teams do um, on development for aero and for gains like that um and the fear is that this might be the case after this that they end up starting to spend big to get these advantages and whatnot and why MotoGP is so unique as I discussed or touched upon before was that it is somewhat of an even playing field given that your customer teams and your independent sorry well not independents but yeah your customer teams or whatever can actually fight for wins as well um with similar all the same machinery some teams they use year old equipment or whatever if you're like a pramac ducati you might you have one of your riders on a on a year old um spec bike then you've got the lcr team um for honda which cal crutchlow gets the same bike as as a mark marquez does for example and as a result of that we see Cal winning races, we see him finishing on the podium, perhaps not in championship contention, but, you know, it just keeps that, you know, flavour fresh with someone else being able to contend. So whether this starts now, this aero war, and we start seeing Yamaha, Honda, Ducati, and the other guys, um, Suzuki, KDM, and Aprilia spending big to make these gains, that may dilute it a little bit, but given that there's six manufacturers at the moment, you know, it would still be, it still would be great, but yeah, you just want to keep it as even as possible, so that's probably, you know, my only complaint about if they started doing that, but as far as what Ducati are doing at the moment, credit to them. I mean, they've not won a championship since Casey Stoner when he was on the bike. Valentino Rossi went there, had no success, and that bike has inherently been difficult for a lot of riders to adapt to, and it's not since Divizioso, I guess, really getting his hands around the team and adapting it to the way he wants it that they've become this championship force like Jorge Lorenzo it took him a year and a half and a non-renewal of his contract with Ducati to actually start winning races on that bike and then when he did he won three races um, I think two of them in succession as well so you know it's a difficult bike but it's working for Divizioso at the moment and I guess you'd be not it wouldn't be a bad idea to put 
to to tip him for the world championship. But at the same time, Mark Marquez is just a freak of nature. And even on a Honda that might not be as quick as the Ducati, he's able to still find a result on that bike. So don't rule it out. Um, but this weekend will be important. Remember last year, Argentina was that hot point between Rossi and Marquez or whatever. Rossi going down in the end, no points for him. Um, Yamaha a lot stronger this season, it seems. But Rossi, I guess the qualifying that he had in Qatar was not very um, impressive. Mark uh, Maverick Vinales was on pole position, but just had a poor race, poor start, as he's always had. So... Those guys hopefully looking for a good result. And Rossi has won here previously in um, Qatar, sorry, in Argentina, as has Vinales. So it would be good to see Yamaha back up there as well. And Suzuki, shout out to them too. Both Rins and John Juan Mir were really strong So in the first race. So we could probably see Rins, you know, win a race, win his first MotoGP race this year, which would be really exciting for the, for the young Spaniard. So... Um, again, that's going to be one that's going to be on at an odd hour on Monday morning. I'm, I am in consideration. I'm really deep in thought about whether I should do the double and, you know, F1 at 2am in the morning and then stay up for the MotoGP at, I think it's either 4am or 5am and then go to work straight afterwards. So this is, this is life of a motorsport fan is... You know, especially living on this side of the world when you have to get up at crazy hours of the day. And then Monday, not necessarily a write-off, but you're kind of, you're not there in a sense when you're at work. So, you know, it'll be better when the European races start and, you know, it's it's not at 2am in the morning, but a more palatable 10 past 11, which, you know, I, that last year it almost, uh, not killed me, but it was... It was close to some of those races where you've not done until one a.m. and then you got to get up again six in the the six a.m. to to go to work. It does wear you out, but you know it's why we love it. It's why we love racing, and that's why I'm happy to sit here and talk about racing with you guys uh, week in week out. And I guess that's all I have time for. I would have liked to have done a bit of footy for you, given that we had AFL on last week and and round two of the NRL too, but I'll leave that till next time. I guess I'm still a bit filthy about my um, AFL fantasy results, even though I won my matchup. Just some of the individual performances were were woeful and just needed to make changes straight away. I'm pretty shattered too with the way that the Cowboys lost to the Broncos. Um, Big defeat last week and to lose Jason Taumalalo as well six to ten weeks um, with that knee injury it's it, it really yeah it took a few days to to kind of recover so and now that I'm thinking about it I'm, I might have a little moment again to myself but um yeah I'll leave, I'll do that once I turn this one off. But um, yeah, as far as um, Bahrain is concerned, hopefully it's going to be a cracker of a race, round two of the championship. Um, And I'm going to talk all about it for you next week. So thanks for tuning in. Remember to like and subscribe on Twitter, Facebook. The links are in the description and all. And um, thanks for tuning in and see you guys next week.